evidence and answers. The religion of Islam is based on the writings found in the Quran. But what does this mysterious book say? How is it interpreted? And what can we learn from it? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will interview Mark Robert Anderson, author of the book, Quran in Context. Mark has studied the Quran and will help us to understand these Islamic writings a little bit better. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Listen now as Pat Zugrin presents part two of his interview with author and lecturer, Mark Robert Anderson. And so for them, there is much more of a sense, like you could say, well, this, this shouldn't be. They, if they read their own scripture, they wouldn't really come up with this view. But they still, they do have a view of God that he's intimate and he, he wants to be related to them and he has everything to do with their life. And so when they pray, they would pray probably in those terms. You have, I would say, the majority of Muslims, though, do not have that. And it's much more an emphasis on fear and hellfire and judgment. And so when they pray, their idea of God is of a God who's way far above them, who isn't interested in relationship with them. And so it's more just a something we do. We don't even have to understand why we're supposed to do it. That's how Muslims would approach it. You just do it because God wants it. And maybe different Muslims would have different ideas about, you know, well, it it sort of helps to orient you to piety and and that sort of thing five times a day, just, just doing that. But in any case, it isn't anything of intimate relationship. And it's not really, in that sense, communication with God. It's just going through a routine that God requires. Now, one of the significant differences I see is that the Quran also denies the doctrine of the Trinity as blasphemy. Is that correct? Right. That's right. Yeah. So explain yeah. that to a, how do they see the Trinity and why would that be blasphemy for them? I don't know what's the best way to come at it, but if you think about the political circus that we sometimes get to watch between, you know, left wing, right wing, whatever in, in our society, You know, it's about attacking the other guy, whichever side you're on, and making him look like a fool. And it's not about trying to present him in the fairest terms possible. You're just out to score points and to win the contest. And it's like that, I think, in the Quran, in in the way the Quran approaches the Trinity. It's not trying to present the Christian viewpoint, it's trying to make the Trinity look really bad. And so there are different verses that talk about it. Some of them make you think that the Trinity is God the Father, Mary the Mother, and Jesus. In any case, whoever the three members of the Trinity are, it's presented as like a pagan concept of multiple gods. Definitely. Now, what does the Quran teach regarding the nature of man? 
Well, uh, it doesn't it doesn't look at human beings as sinful in the sense that there's something twisted in us that makes us want to do evil or to be selfish. There's nothing of that concept really, uh, at least not consistent. Unbelievers are viewed in that way, but not not believers. And the appeal to, to people to believe assumes, it, it would seem, that everyone has the possibility, if they want to, of just doing the right thing. And, and so the Quranic view of salvation, how do you become acceptable to God, is one of just doing all the right things. And, and seemingly, if we're just told what we need to do, we have the capacity to do those things. We don't need a Savior uh, to help us, to, you know, kind of pull us up beyond what we can pull ourselves up. So that would be one of the reasons why they reject the atoning work of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, because we can Absolutely, yeah. accomplish our salvation. Isn't that right? That's right, yeah. Now, since salvation is, you know, I can earn it, it's a works-oriented salvation, can a Muslim be sure that they have done enough? No, and and the, the Quran is pretty clear about that, and I think Muslims would all agree it would be presumptuous to think that you've done enough, that you could ever know that. And that, to me, that makes perfect sense. Of course, from a Christian point of view, we're talking about a relationship that is based on grace. And it's, it's in that relationship that we have our salvation. So it's such a different approach. Yeah, as Christians, we believe that our salvation is based on the atoning work of Christ, which he already accomplished, whereas a Muslim, each person has to strive and work hard to earn favor with Allah. So really, no one can be sure. That's the big difference there, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's interesting, Pat, that the only times the Quran uses the term atonement or atone, it's always in reference to things that you do yourself as a believer to try to earn your salvation. So even if a Muslim dies in jihad or in, you know, in battle, he still won't have that assurance? No, sorry. That's the one exception. So the Quran does say, and Muslims do believe, that if you die fighting on behalf of Islam, then you will go directly to heaven. So that's the one exception. And obviously that was a great help to the Muslim community for recruiting soldiers, especially in the early years when Muhammad, it was a struggle for him. Now, there are some who teach that, like chapter 46 of the Quran, where Muhammad said, I'm no bringer of newfangled doctrine among the apostles, nor do I know what will be done with me or with you, some say that even Muhammad was not 100% sure of his eternal fate. Is that correct? I see that in the Quran. Muslims would probably be appalled to hear us saying that because, of course, they, they wouldn't accept that. But yeah, I think Muhammad did not elevate himself in you know, above other believers in, in one sense, he didn't. And so, and he wasn't claiming that he had his salvation all secure. I think that's fair personally, but, uh, but again, Muslims wouldn't go for that. 
Now, what about this teaching of, you know, virgins in heaven? What does the Quran say about that? I speak with many Muslims on that, and they really, well, here in the West especially, they really shy away from that, or some just come outright and deny that. Does the Quran mention that? It does. Now, it doesn't. It doesn't spell things out the way you would like. Let's say you know the way a systematic theology spells things out. Right. It doesn't do that. And so there are passages that talk about it. Some of the words that are being used are only used once, for example, in the Quran. And so then it's it's debatable what the word means. People from our time can say, no, I don't think that word meant that. But we have also the tradition of interpretation. So commentators from the early years, and we need to look at what they understood the term to mean. And so I think, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that the Quran does promise virgins or beautiful young girls to the believers who die and go to paradise. And uh, so that's, again, modern period. People don't feel so comfortable with that. It doesn't make Islam look very good. Yeah. Who are those early commentators that we should be familiar with? There are a whole, there's a whole um, tradition. My favorite Muslim commentator is a guy by the name of Zamakhshiri. One of the reasons I like him so much is that he especially looked at the context of passages and and he looked at the grammar and, and it wasn't based so much on sort of the traditional understanding that they had, but he was actually trying to deal with what was in the text and what we knew of know of the context and, and that sort of thing. A lot of what you find in the commentators is giving you what the tradition was. So I tend in my book, for example, not to follow the commentators. I'm not debating with them. A lot of times I'm if I bring in a commentator, it might be Zamakhshari, because he's actually talking with what is in the text. What does the Quran teach about Jesus? Uh, the Quran does two things in its presentation of Jesus. And you need to understand that everyone in Arabia was familiar with Jesus. If you think of our time period, 21st century, we religion is not mainstream i would say in the in the media religion is not mainstream in universities so both the media and the intelligentsia try to put down religion in general it wasn't like that at all in muhammad's time everybody was religious and so everybody knew about jesus whether they accepted the Christian presentation or not, Christian beliefs. So Jews, of course, knew all about Jesus. And the Persian emperor, we have a letter where he is talking about Jesus in his letter to the Byzantine emperor. So Jesus was well known. The Quran has a bit of a challenge then because it wants to hold on to Jesus but it doesn't want to elevate him too much because Christians, of course, 
worship Jesus, and the Quran was not going to allow that. It wanted to bring Muhammad in as the final prophet and really as the most important prophet of all. And so there's a sense that you have reading about Jesus in the Quran where it does want to honor him, but it also wants to marginalize him. And it, it does both pretty effectively. And so it talks mainly, most of what it says about Jesus is about his birth. And so if you think about writing someone's biography and, and you spend, you know, three quarters of your time just talking about his birth and maybe up to age two or three, that's really not giving much of his life. And so that's where the Quran puts its emphasis. And it's able by doing that to honor Jesus, but again, to not make too much of Jesus, to, to marginalize him. And it comes to the end of his life. And really, there's a few passages that talk about his death, but they are so few and such little is being given to you about Jesus' death that most Muslims today interpret them to mean that Jesus did not die on the cross, but that he will come again at some point in the future and he will die then. And so they make those passages sort of prophetic, talking about the end time. Yes, the Quran teaches that Christ himself even never declared to be the divine son of God, but just another prophet. And that is right. blasphemy to worship him as the divine son of God. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. It says, you know, Jesus is, it shows Jesus being appalled to hear that this is what his followers do and, you know, says, I had nothing to do with that. So how does the Quran approach Christian and Jews? From my understanding, in the early surahs, the Mecca surahs that Muhammad wanted to win the favor of the Christians and Jews and was tolerant towards them. But after moving to Medina and gathering a following and seeing that the Jews and the Christians rejected him, he turned hostile towards them and denounces them in the later history of the Quran. Is that accurate? Yeah, pretty accurate. We're not sure how much interaction he had, or at least I'm not sure how much interaction he had with Christians. From the tradition, we know that he had quite a bit of interaction with Jews in Medina. Most of the traditional stories about Muhammad's interaction with Christians, and there's not too many of them, but there are a few, they're really given for polemical reasons. So they're trying to show that that some monk that Muhammad encountered, he knew that Muhammad was a prophet from God, this Christian holy man, and that kind of thing. So I tend not to put too much stock in them. Whereas when we're talking about Muhammad and his dealings with the Jews, there are many, many stories, and they don't all make Muhammad look very good. And so it seems quite likely that we should pay heed to them. But yes, you're absolutely right. When Muhammad gained power in Medina. He didn't need the Jews' support as much. Well, he, he needed their support, but when they didn't give it to him, then he turned against them. By the time he had maybe some interaction with Christians, he had enough power that he probably didn't need their help so much. And so 
he wasn't as critical of the Christians as he was of the Jews. But it seems pretty clear from reading the Quran that if you don't accept Muhammad as God's prophet, by the end of the Quran, if you're a Christian and you don't accept Muhammad as God's prophet, then you can't really expect that God's going to uh, put up with that. And it seems like that's where the tradition comes from between the hostility between the Muslim world and the Jews, which permeates even to this day. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Quite a few passages in the Quran that attack the Jews. There's one, I mean, there are some really nasty things said about the Jews on occasion. And so in today's context, especially, Muslims view the state of Israel like a return to the Crusades. So during the Crusades, Christians went to Palestine and they took land and started little kingdoms and so on. And so Muslims today tend to look at what happened with the founding of the state of Israel in 1948 in those same terms, except that it's Jewish with Christian backing. So they're fairly hostile toward Jews over that. And then any Muslims who approach the Middle Eastern situation in those terms, they just have to turn back to the Quran and they can find quite a bit of negative stuff about Jews and, and sort of use that as ammunition. Now, you pointed out some significant differences between the Bible and the Quran. You know, what do Muslims say when they see these differences between the Bible and the Quran? Well, their big sort of escape hatch you could say, is to say that the Bible has been corrupted. And of course, you can dismiss anything that a Christian says on the basis that, well, your scripture has been corrupted, and so we don't have to listen to that. It's a little different, though, if you ask a Muslim, so what exactly in the Bible has been corrupted? When was it corrupted? Who did it? Etc. All those kind of questions. They don't really have any of the specifics on any of that. And if they start looking at the Bible and realize to what extent it would have had to be corrupted, we're not talking, I mean, basically, it would have had to be rewritten almost completely. And so uh, those are those are good questions to put to Muslims. You know, one of the biggest differences is the denial of the death and resurrection of Christ. And on, on what historical basis do they reject that? I often don't get a clear answer. Do you? Yeah, there's no historical basis. Again, how do they know that's true? The Quran says so. Yeah, it's kind and of that's, that's really it, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Mark, you touched on it a little bit. What does the Quran teach regarding jihad? Is it a peaceful, spiritual warfare kind of struggle or what does it mean when it's teaching on jihad? Well, I think in fairness to Muslims, there are some Muslims who hold it in that really peaceful, it's just a matter of personal piety. There are definitely Muslims who, who believe it and, and uh, see it in those terms. And so in dealing with those kind of Muslims, you're going to want to just work with them wherever they are. But in terms of what the Quran itself says, and again, looking at the Quran in context, its historic context, it was very definitely military from 
the time of Muhammad's migration to Medina. So about halfway through his prophetic career, he came to political power and instead of just responding to his enemies verbally, as he had done in Mecca, once he had the power to exercise, you know, to fight battles against his enemies, that's exactly what he did. And so jihad, which simply means struggle, changed its meaning. It took on a different meaning once Muhammad moved to Medina. It became a military struggle because that's what was going on. And so to deny that, as some Muslims today do, is not really doing the Quran credit, giving it credit. It's it's not actually fair to the Quran or to the early history of Islam. But there are some who try to say that. Yeah, it seems like as you study the Quran and the life of Muhammad, you know, he was a warrior who fought in, I think, about 29, well, who led 29 battles, uh, how many he actually fought in, I'm not sure. But it seems like if you take it literally and you get serious about really modeling your life after Muhammad and interpreting the Quran literally, it seems to me like you would become more of the warlike or militant. Yeah, yeah. I think that is fair to say. I, I really do. I think the more you definitely you want to see the spread of Islam throughout the whole world. I mean, as Christians, of course, we want to see the gospel spread through the world so we can understand that. But the difference is that Islam is also a political religion. And so seeing Islam spread is is really about taking over political entities and, and applying Sharia law and that sort of thing. Yeah, you talk about applying Sharia law. So what we're seeing in Europe and the West as Muslims migrate, it seems like many do want a better life and are willing to assimilate to a culture, but many are not and wanting to apply Sharia law once they get to a critical number, like about 10% or gain a majority in a particular neighborhood. Is that what you're saying? I think that's fair enough to say. I think there are lots and lots of people who have come from, say, the Middle East or Indonesia or whatever different countries where Islam is the majority, and they wanted to get away from all of the negative aspects of life there, the coercion, the religious coercion being one of them. And so they come and they love the freedom that they find in the West. And many of them have come to America, for example, and just really are thrilled to be in a society that's as open and as free as America is. But when their numbers increase, there is definitely a tendency for people to feel they want to see, to make it easier to observe Muslim religion. And the easier way to do that, of course, would be to bring in the law, the, the Sharia. And um, so you find that in Europe, it's, it's happening in certain places, definitely. 
We've been talking with Mark Robert Anderson on Islam and his new book out here, The Quran in Context. And really, you know, Mark, we just touched the tip of the iceberg, didn't we? I mean, we've just done a brief overview of the things you go into much more in depth of your book. Right. Well, Mark, if people want more information on how they can study your research and the things that you're doing, how can they find information on you and information about what you're doing? Well, I have a blog, which is understandingislam.today. And so they can find, I, I often write on different topics that are current there about Islam, just to try and help Christians understand Islam. And of course, my book is available on Amazon or through InterVarsity Press and some other online booksellers. Yes, this is a fantastic book that's really going to help you understand it. the Quran, which can be really difficult for many of us to understand who, who do not have the background that experts like Mark has. So it's a great resource. It's called The Quran in Context and its publisher is InterVarsity Press. So Mark, thanks for taking time to be with us here on Evidence and Answers. Pat, it's been a real privilege. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Yeah.